Hello and welcome, dear listener. A quick note before we start the show, we had a technical glitch with our usual recording software on the day that we recorded this interview with Jesse Neeland. So you'll hear that our audio doesn't sound quite as nice as normal, but it's a wonderful conversation with some some gems in it. So please excuse the audio quality and uh, we hope you enjoy. Center. I'm psychotherapist, couples counselor, and dating coach Jessica Engel, and this is I Love You Too, a show about how to create and sustain meaningful relationships. I'm dating and relationship coach Josh Van Bleet. On today's episode, we're going to talk about body image and relationships with our very special guest, Jesse Neeland. We're so happy you're here, and please remember that this show is not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Welcome, welcome, dear listener, uh, and welcome, Jesse. We are so thrilled to have you joining us today. Uh, for you. those of you, yeah, for those of you who don't know Jesse, Jesse Neeland is a writer, speaker, and coach on a mission to help folks escape suffering caused by body image issues through the pursuit of body neutrality. Uh, and Jesse is the author of Body Neutral, a revolutionary guide to overcoming body image issues, as well as the host of the podcast, This Is Not About Your Body. And also just a delightful human. It's been so fun to connect with you, Jesse, uh, in our prep for this and listening to your work and, and reading some of your work. It's been really, really fun. So I'm really glad that we get to share your wisdom with with our audience today. That's so sweet. Thank you. Is there anything that you'd like to share about who you are, what you do, just to kind of introduce yourself to folks? I mean, you covered the basics. I uh, I'm a body image coach and I... I'm lately obsessing over uh, how to help people break free from internalized oppression, all of the many forms that that can take, and often the the overlap there with patriarchy and body image issues. So, yeah, that's where my my head has been at lately. But everything else you said pretty much covers it. Oh, beautiful. Well, we're especially excited to chat with you today about, as I said, this intersection between. Uh, healthy relating and body image. And there's so much that comes up at this intersection that kind of gets in the way of making meaningful connections and building healthy relationships. And so we're going to be diving in with that today. Yes. Yeah. Jess, well, I just want here? to see if we can start out. I think a lot of people have probably heard about body positivity and body neutrality is probably a newer term for them. And so I, I thought we might just start out by having you kind of set the table in terms of what is body neutrality and, and why is that even helpful? Yeah, definitely. So when I first heard the term, it was sort of posed as like an alternative, sort of like a resting place between hating your body and loving your body, if that felt like a lot of pressure. And uh, it felt a little bit more realistic and accessible for people, but it really was at, at the time kind of just like a... I don't know, like an in-between place. It didn't have it. It wasn't super fleshed out in the way that I have approached it and it has evolved and developed in my work. I now think of it as the ability to engage with and view your body and other people's bodies without the added meaning that we learn to associate with different shapes and sizes and appearances of bodies. So uh, we're constantly adding meaning. That meaning is usually what makes you hate your body or sometimes love your body and feel super confident. Both of those things are problematic in their own right. To me, the body neutrality is not just a resting place, although absolutely that can be what gets people in the door. It's about actually being able to view it 
accurately without that interpretation and meaning sort of being layered on top. I love that. And so what would be an example of, of meaning somebody might ascribe to their body or to another person's body? Oh, God, uh, like a super common example would be that if you're fat, you're lazy or like sort of have some some kind of character flaw. You're, you're a terrible person somehow because you haven't figured out how to, you know, live your life right. And it just means this really, really negative stuff about you based on one factor, which would be just right. body size. I'm so excited to talk to you about this as it relates to relationships, because something that I see often with the clients that we're working with who are looking for their partner or people who are partnered is how the way they think about their bodies or other people's bodies stops them from enjoying the relationships that they're in or being open to lots of different kinds of connections. And so I'm curious yeah. in the work that you've done, and this is a, a broad question, so go with it where you want, like what kinds of shifts do you see in people's relationships when they start to sort of walk the body neutrality path and kind of pull away those, those meanings uh, about people's bodies? That is a huge question because it kind of depends on what how how their meaning was impacting them in the first place. But I would say like a pretty good across the board would be relationships improve because they start to feel more worthy as a human as opposed to... Because um, when you have all this meaning attached to the, all of these things, you're constantly like imagining that your worth kind of goes up and down and that impacts how you show up in relationships because you're trying to like earn getting your needs met by providing them with something they like or want you know it's it just gets gets in the way of authenticity so much so pretty much no matter what the meaning was it it makes it easier to be real with the person in front of you I also think a lot of people's body image issues come from a desire to like control stuff that's not controllable Um, and so as they let go of that as they sort of acknowledge and release that fantasy that that they can control these things or be so perfect that they'll never be rejected or, you know, whatever it might be, they learn to tolerate their own feelings, which is, again, just going to make every relationship smoother, more authentic, more intimate. I love that. Mm. Well, I think that leads beautifully into our next section. Josh, where do you want to go here? Yeah, I mean, let's let's start with dating because we work with a lot of folks around dating and some portion of our the folks who come to us avoid dating because of body image issues. And so I'm curious what's your take Jesse on like how do you how do you approach dating or how do you engage with dating uh if you've got body image issues which is like all of us basically, right? Like it's such a hard one. And I think it's important just to start by saying it's very understandable because when you've learned that, so the meaning there could be anything, it could be super nuanced and complex, but at its basis, it's like, you're not good enough to date, that what your body is means something basically makes you like undesirable on the the market or people won't love you or you know, any number of interpretations, but basically they're all, you're just not good enough. You don't deserve to do it or find someone or be loved. And that's an incredibly objectifying stance. The idea that we are choosing each other based exclusively on our body shape or size or appearance 
we don't think about what a terrible and mean thought that is. Or if, you know, most people say, is that why you choose people? Like, is that what you're looking for? And they're like, oh my God, no, never. Like that's, you know, that's not what I like or want or, or I'm looking for, but it's what I imagine everyone else is. And so it's an incredibly lonely place to be. It's super, super isolating and scary and shamey and hard and really common. But I think that starting to identify what that meaning is for any particular individual, really naming the story and then challenging. And I, I always say like um, just poking holes in the argument with <laughs> mm. with like, you know, sort of chipping it away at it because I'm never going to just convince someone, oh, yeah, you're fine. People will love you and want you. It's no problem. Like that's never going to convince someone who feels that way. Mm-hmm. So instead we find ways to to poke holes in the argument that in fact – this thing about how you look is it it makes you unchoosable, unlovable, unworthy for the dating world. I'm curious uh, to dig into that a little bit more in the poking the holes in the argument, because, you know, I think that body image stuff around dating can, there's so many negative messages we get in pop culture from people in the dating pool and it can feel very easy to, I think for a lot of people, assert their usual narrative. So, for example, if I'm a, a, a curvy woman of color, right, there are actual biases out there that are stopping that person from actually yeah. getting matches or being treated respectfully, right? And so I'm curious yeah. when somebody who comes from Uh, marginalized groups comes to you and says like, no, the reality is the world wants me to be thin and white. Yeah. How do you respond to that? Well, uh, I'm going to start by telling you a kind of funny and kind of embarrassing story, which is that I had uh, only worked with women at the point that I started working with an Asian man And I tried to do with him in this space what I had been doing successfully with women for years. And I was like, just get on Tinder and start chatting with people. It'll build your confidence and, you know, start helping fear face. And months went by and there was no matches with whom to practice chatting. And I had to take a very humbling dive down the rabbit hole of racism on dating apps and just sort of learning like, whoa, this is a this is a literal barrier to even just what I was thinking of as a place to practice or, or explore. So uh, that was many years ago now, but it, uh, it taught me a lot. And it was pretty shocking, I think, at the time. Um, but now when I say like looking at your body accurately, viewing these things without the added meaning, accurately includes acknowledging all, reality, which includes living inside of a system of oppression where, yeah, your body absolutely might limit your dating pool. It might limit your matches. It might limit your opportunities. I think the meaning, though, that people ascribe to that fact, which is true, is that it means something about them, which is not. And that's where we start to differentiate. And honestly, when someone's in that position, there's a lot of grief work to go through a lot of times because it's almost like empowering isn't quite the right word, but there's something about feeling like, well, if it's my fault and I can change it, then I'll have access. It's like that, that fake fantasy of maybe if I lose the weight, then I'll be a more desirable match and this will be easier. Um, and kind of accepting like, actually, it's not my fault that people are fat phobic. 
but it does limit my options. So this is going to be harder for me. And that just hurts. I think that's such a brilliant distinction to make that because I think one of the places kind of personal development and and this kind of world can often go wrong is so focused on the individual that it's like it's all in your control. It's all it's all about what you're thinking or what you're thinking about yourself and, and ignoring the the realities of what's happening in the world and what's just true about the conditions that we're existing in. And the like you're saying, that fantasy of well, if I if I do think it's within my control and I could just lose the weight and that would change things. You know, it's an under. It's like a. It's like a. Uh, a useful defense mechanism. Almost, it gives us yeah. a sense of of power, but it's the wrong sense of power because it's not real. <laughs> it doesn't right. actually. It's not going to get us where we ultimately want to go. And so I love that you're making that distinction. Like, okay, there's truth here about what the conditions are, and the 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 nuance here is that doesn't mean anything about you. We can make that distinction. That's huge. Yeah. And along with the grief of just acknowledging like this is hard for me and it hurts and it sucks and all of that stuff. There's also a lot of times a lot of important work to move through around the anger, the anger at the injustice that is a system in which something about your body makes your opportunities less available. But by getting angry at the system and any people who upheld those systems or, you know, used it against you in the past, which most people in marginalized bodies have lots of those stories, it starts to shift the shame and it stops being the story of I'm just not good enough or I don't deserve better and it shifts into the right people will like me for who I am and it may be harder for me to find those people because of this messed up system. I'm thinking about the conversation you and I had on your podcast, Jesse, about narcissistic family systems and how for some people who grow up with self-absorbed parents, they learn to take responsibility for everything. And they don't have the emotional skill set to grieve and to feel rightful rage at people who are actually hurting them. And so it sounds like part of the work you're describing is we have to shift out of that understandable defense, as Josh was saying, and learn how to like let our hearts be broken in a different way yeah. and to feel bigly. And to also with that, and this is part of what I loved in listening to your book, was just part of what comes with that is we also have to develop new skills and face fears, mm-hmm. right? Because if, it, if it's not that there's something wrong with me, there's a bunch of things to do, right? There's like writing a profile yeah, exactly. and there's going out on dates yeah. and feeling awkward on dates and so many things. And a lot of internal work too. If you've never learned discernment or the ability to listen to your intuition or that you have a right to uh, have your own desires and take up space or advocate for your needs. My God, there's so many skills that can go into it, which is why sometimes when people are like, well, what can I expect? How long will this take? I'm like, really depends. There's a lot to do. As For some people, it is a very long process and it's not just, okay, I feel worthy now and it's all fine. It's an ongoing commitment to learning how to be in the world without those fantasies kind of like protecting slash hurting you, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it strikes me that the work that you do may be similar to the work we do in that I remember when I first started doing dating coaching, 
I think I had this thought that it was going to be kind of like light work. <laughs> right? I can see that. Yeah. And the truth is like dating goes to the, the, the darkest of the dark, the deepest of the deep, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, yeah, finding a partner may be a, a limited time effort, but all of the stuff that it kicks up yeah. is, you know, probably goes back decades. And it sounds like that's the same for the work yeah. that you do. It's like, yeah, it's body image, but oh, it is so much more than body image. Yeah. I mean, I would say that for most of like when I take on a new client, we will rarely spend more than like a few weeks getting to something much deeper and more interesting than body image and then stay there for like months before swinging back. And they're kind of like, oh, yeah, I guess I haven't thought about that in a while or I haven't had like a haven't been feeling insecure. I haven't thought about it at all. I'm like, yep, because it wasn't about that. And we could talk about that until the cows come home. But like it is this deeper stuff. Also, that's so funny you say that because until I met my partner now of uh, just over four years, I would have said exactly the same. And I think I even was a little bit like, like working with people in relationships Mm -hmm. is boring. And now I'm like, it's the hardest, (laughs) deepest, most interesting work ever. Mm -hmm. And it's the trickiest because we do think of it as as more surfacey, I think, in some ways in our culture. Yeah. I'm curious, Jesse, where like... So imagining someone who is, you know, listening to this, they, they're kind of hearing what we're saying about acknowledging the grief and the anger and kind of, okay, in process with acknowledging the, the, the kind of distortions or the places where these things have impacted them and their, their sense of their, their own body and worth. And like, where do they go from here? Like, are there, are there kind of practical next steps that you would you would recommend to folks or like where do you imagine they go from here uh as they're you know engaging on this what is going to be as you're saying a very long journey it's not like a snap your fingers okay great yeah uh well i can answer that in the length of a book (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) i mean i put all the steps there uh it's kind of hard to summarize quickly but um I do think that the most important thing really takes some time sometimes to even just do like step one, which is basically acknowledging that the thing causing you suffering isn't your body. And kind of like I said about convincing people that they're worthy and and all of those things, I can't just make you believe that. It really does take some coming to for each individual Um, I can poke holes in it, right? I can be like, well, can you imagine a person in a non-conventionally attractive or marginalized body who feels confident? And everybody usually can name someone. And can you think of a person who, you know, I mean, Beyonce or somebody who might feel insecure sometimes, and they usually can. And I'm like, then great. What, What is it then that feels so definite to you that the thing that is your problem is your body and it would all be solved if you looked different? But even that is pretty hard. And once you acknowledge that, I think you do immediately get like transported into that realm of the deeper and more interesting. But it takes a lot of curiosity, a lot of experimentation, because it's not stuff worth it. Nobody looks in the mirror and thinks like, oh, I feel, uh, you know, less deserving of not nobody, maybe, but less deserving of respect today, because these pants are tight. That's not usually what people are thinking. They're just thinking like, oh, gross, I hate this. This is bad. Yeah. So it does take, um, I think, some a new. It's a new way of thinking about the whole process. But once you engage in that, it does kind of organically take you through the next steps. I think. 
I love I, it's. I think you're so right on that we don't. Yeah, it's it's usually just that like disgust or shame or yeah. anxiety. That's just like this. It feels almost. I don't know. Just like it just happens. It just like. Yeah. And I love what you're what you're saying there about like okay, that's not you know that's happening, but it's not about that mm-hmm. and linking it to okay, yeah, it's, it's I'm not feeling deserving of respect today. Uh, Even identifying yeah. that your body image can go up and down despite the fact that you more or less look the same mm. is, I think, it, it's a good way of chipping away at the idea that your body's the definite problem because you yeah. start to be like, well, how come I could feel okay last week and not okay this week? Um, but even within that, I think it shocks my clients in the beginning sometimes if they'll be like, "Ugh, I'm just like feeling fat or gross or ugly or whatever the thing is. And it came out of nowhere and I don't know why. And I'll be like, tell me what was going on, you know, in the days leading up to that. And there's always an answer and they're always surprised. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, that's not how we're taught to think about the process where we think of it as like, you know, a lightning bolt strikes and you feel fat and gross today instead of like an emotional, you're probably having a fairly reasonable reaction to the meaning that you've learned on a subconscious level and whatever else was coming up for you in that time and space. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the way you talk in your book about bringing neutrality to that as well. Like both (laughs) the, the actual body image and then like your feelings about your body. Right. Yeah. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Okay. I give people permission to yeah. like have body image issues, which is very counter right. uh, intuitive sometimes, but I'm like, I mean, that's what's here today. So that's what yeah. we're working with. We got to yeah. let it be. It's, it's brilliant. Cause, cause when we push that stuff away, it's like, it's, we're engaging with it more rather than like, okay, this is so I'm having this thought and even having this thought or having this feeling yeah. doesn't mean anything about me. It's just there. And I will say that that's one of the hardest things. It's almost like the, um, you know, ignorance is bliss thing or, or yeah, it's like the, when you just hate your body and you're positive that like it sucks and it's the problem, you don't necessarily have to feel any shame about failing at like, you know, body positivity or feminism or any of these things, right? So it's almost like the more someone's walking the path or gaining insight into themselves or understanding these concepts, um, the self-judgment for still struggling, honestly, gets a lot louder yeah. for a while, Got, gets a lot more intense. And so even just giving people permission, I've given clients the assignment, like your job is to hate your body so much today and tomorrow too, if that's what, like, that is your assignment. And I, I want to hear that you properly <laughs> hated it. Like, because it, you know, it's a little bit playful, but it brings you back to a place of like, oh, so it's okay that I'm here today. Yeah. And now there's just one less layer of shame to go through to actually look at what's going on. I love that. That's brilliant. I'm thinking, Jesse, about... So uh, I think about body image a lot in terms of how people choose partners. And one of the things... So we give our clients often an exercise where they sort of figure out what their ideal partner, uh, what their traits are, right? And then they kind of prioritize that list and we encourage them to have what we call a short list, which is like, okay, and you're probably not going to get all the things. So like what's most important. And we share research about what it actually links to healthy relationships, things like a growth mindset, the capacity to resolve conflict in a collaborative way, you know, and 
oh, by the way, research shows that things like race and height and just physical attractiveness, if that's really important to you, you're probably not going to actually have a great relationship with that person or there's just no impact, right? And even with all of that, often we will have clients come and say, okay, here's my list. And they'll say, I feel really badly about this, but, and it is, I'm only attracted to people who are fill in the blank, right? And you can imagine what that is, Mm -hmm. you know, tall man, thin woman, right? And it's an interesting one because it's like, I can feel that they're, they're ambivalent, right? About that being on their list and or know that it's not a good look, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to put Um, it. And it's like, I think sometimes when I kind of explore that with people or when our clinicians kind of like swipe with clients and see that they're really only kind of choosing people who really fit the the um, very small percentage of people who fit society's standards of beauty. And we kind of like push on that a little bit. It's like, well, but this is just how I'm wired. I just am not attracted to people outside what society has told me is attractive. And so, yeah, I know that's kind of a big download, but I'm just wondering how you respond to that generally. That's a huge one. I I feel like that's also a really good example of the ignorance is bliss thing. Like if you just fully bought into like beauty and body ideals and we're like they're facts and they're not changing, you wouldn't feel guilty or ambivalent about it at all. You'd be like, I just like hot people and that's that. But once you kind of have some intuitive sense that maybe there's more going on and actually this is sort of a superficial bias and maybe that's not like the value you want to be upholding, but it's still there. Yeah, it starts to get a little messier and that happens all the time. I feel like the first step is to give them permission both to feel how they feel, like what they like, and be curious. Because again, if you're like, well, that's bad or wrong, or you're just responding to biases, most people, they're, they're going to kind of dig their heels in because it feels really deeply true and they have decades of experience believing it. So it, it feels very almost like life-threatening to be told that they have to change something like that that feels so innate. And also the truth is like, you will like what you like. So I certainly can't tell a person that their preference for tall men or thin women is in fact an authentic thing about them versus a hierarchical body, you know, uh, bias or something like that. But I do encourage people to be curious and we start to explore things about what meaning they associate or attach to each of the traits just to see and unpack. And sometimes it's like there's one that will hook and they go like, oh, I can see I... I think what I really want isn't someone who's thin and fit. I want someone who will have a fit lifestyle with me. So let's say that they live in a big body, but, you know, all their pictures are like hiking and, you know, playing sports and stuff. Um, Now they might start to understand, okay, that actually checks the box I was looking for, even though the visual doesn't isn't aligned with how I thought checking that box would look. And really getting to the heart of what you actually care about underneath any of those traits, some of it will just be straight up bias and some of it will be really pointing you in the direction of something that matters to you a lot and is important to explore and understand. And uh, yeah, only the individual can kind of parse that apart, but 
I, I also get a lot of pushback to that, interestingly. I will say that it's one of the it's one of the like shamiest things a client will say when they've done their own, they've been working on body image and everything. And they're like unpacking all this stuff. And they're like, I will no longer tolerate someone who objectifies me and holds me these standards. Um, (laughs) However, I do um, (laughs) still hope that my partner, you know, X, Y, Z. And it's hard. It's a hard thing to hold, but I mean, it makes sense. It's messy what we learn. And a lot of the times I think also it's just like a, it's a fast forward button on actually understanding what you're looking for. It's like a lot easier to say I like fit looking people versus I'm interested in someone who will, you know, live this kind of lifestyle with me. And then to actually take the time to get to know who will and won't connect with you on those levels so it, it does kind of like speed you through some of the harder work if you're just going on right. visuals, even if those visuals don't actually align, which right. they often don't. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. There, Some of the research we've shared on the podcast looks at like most people when they're on dating apps, they're looking for things that are easily detectable in an instant. When in reality, they're looking for something else. Like you're saying, they're looking maybe for somebody who wants to yeah. be engaged physically, Right. The example that you gave earlier of, oh, maybe I'm just looking for somebody who's physically active and having a smaller body isn't actually important to me. It seems like that one really would require that person to understand that fat can be fit, that a larger body isn't necessarily um, an unhealthy one. That's why I say you kind of, you have to kind of go through each one and then address it individually because let's say you have a long list, you've got 30 physical traits that you're looking for. Each one of them probably has its own individual meaning, whether that's some kind of bias that needs to be like re-educated around. For example, like the BMI is nonsense and body size does not determine fitness levels or ability. So there's probably, you know, some of them will be like that. Some of them will just be something innate. You just love the look of a broad shoulder maybe, or, you know, you're particularly attracted to masculinity or femininity and some people embody that visually and others don't. Like, and then there's others that are more about the meaning associated in terms of, so so for example, um, I worked with a woman once who like, wanted a man like a bear of a man she wanted a man to throw her around this big masculine fantasy she finds herself with a very large masculine looking man who is incredibly submissive in the bedroom and in their relationship and is so freaking confused about what to do because she's like not attracted to him but should be but can't fit you know and I was like man like a smaller guy who embodied the energy that you just think is unbelievably sexy would have gotten ruled out in the swiping process because we, again, associate the things we're really looking for and we use the little shortcuts in the hopes that tall and broad means dominant and it absolutely does not. Yeah, so I love that point, just like really digging into each one and it seems like that's one of your, like, I don't know how to put it, like magical powers as a, as a healer. You're very, yeah. you're very, it. Um, it seems like you are somebody who, I think you use the phrase that you look for the truthiest truth, right? Like you want to get into yeah. like the heart of the matter. And, and that may need to be done on multiple points when it comes to 
yeah. stuff around bodies. Yep. I, I love also what you're pointing to there, Jesse, around attraction. I mean, I think the, the common myth about attraction is attraction is about physicality. And what you're highlighting there is is so brilliant because it's like what's really sexy to this person is the energy that this person is bringing to their sexual relationship. And it actually has less to do with their physicality. They just think that that's the energy that's supposed to come with that physicality. Yeah. And I'm curious along those lines, like, yeah, I think it feels like a, a pretty pernicious kind of myth in our culture that attraction is just hardwired, right? That it's just like yeah. we just like a certain thing and that's it. And there's like, it's not changeable. It's not, um, it, and it's and it's basically physical, right? Yeah. And I'm curious, like, what... What's your take on that, or how, how do you uh, how do you think about about attraction? Well, I think that's nonsense, but more importantly, I think it's a huge, massive bummer, yeah. societally speaking, that we do that because, at the very, very least, even if we took all the other stuff we've been talking about, meaning and association and all of that out of it, um, even then, it's even if it were purely physical, it's still so much more than visuals. Like there is so many other factors to what turns us on and what we find desirable or sexy or gross, you know, between a person's like smell and uh, different tactile engagements or just there, there's just so much. If you've ever been attracted to the sound of somebody's voice, then like, I mean, it just even in that realm, that purely physical realm, it's so much more interesting and complex than we want it to be or think about it being. And then I feel like even just the physical is a small part, like a pretty significantly small part of the whole package of what turns us on or what we find attractive because we're we're really looking at a lot of things like familiarity and connection and uh, emotional safety and any number of energies, right? Like dominant or submissive or, you know, like how it feels uh, just to be with somebody all of those things impact personality traits impact. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how many times I've like thought someone was not that attractive until they were making me laugh. And I'm like, this person is hot, you know, right. like it changes things to feel connected and, uh, and share something that we care about and enjoy. And that stuff is so much bigger so I just think it's a it's a massive bummer. We're robbed of a lot of really powerful and useful insights when we think of it as just something that's visually impacted. And I know a lot of that is patriarchy because we all learn that men are visual, which is a problematic statistic anyway. But um, yeah, it's almost like we didn't really learn, oh, men are more visual. It's like we learned men have nothing but eyeballs and dicks and like that's it and that's all they they don't have any other parts of themselves and that's all that they can use to determine who to be with which is ridiculous and dehumanizing but it's also just it's just wrong yeah and it's like when we when we when we really kind of recognize that truth i feel like that is part of what maybe helps us begin to dismantle the thought that it has to this person has to come in this particular package yeah. Just like you're saying, like getting to the meaning, like getting to what is, what am I actually attracted to underneath yeah. the visual that totally. when it's like, oh, I'm looking for that dominant energy or I'm looking for that, you know, femininity or masculinity or whatever it is. And how does that show up in our 
interaction versus yeah. just visually. And I mean, if we if we really kind of lean into that, it's like all of a sudden your your dating pool just opens up. It's like right. exactly. holy moly, <laughs> I've got so many options all of a sudden of incredible people. And it's not to say that like visuals don't mean anything because it is one of many factors and it is a notable one because we're very visual creatures, so it, it's there. Um, it's just to say that by boiling it down to that and nothing else or that as like the dominant thing, we we really misunderstand ourselves and we tend to look in the wrong places and choose the wrong people. I think that piece about the messages we're given about men being visual and um, you know constantly horny, ready to go all the time, I've worked with so many men where my heart just breaks because they say, I need an emotional connection in order to be turned on. Is there something wrong with me? And I'm just like, oh, no, honey, there is nothing wrong with you. (laughs) I sometimes like... (laughs) I just wish I could get all the men I work with and all the women I work with in a room together and be like, tell each other how you feel. Everybody is wrong and confused. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I just think it's what you're naming, you know, the heart of your work, that body image isn't about body image in many ways, is so freeing, um, particularly around partnership, because it's like, okay, let's think about people who are looking for a long-term partner their partner is going to age. Their body is going to change. And they, they know this. Some part of them knows this, right? And I know there are a lot of people who will get into relationships and struggle with their, their partner's bodies changing. And what a freeing thing to be able to say, my attraction is not reliant on me keeping my body looking the way it did when we met or my partner keeping their body the way it looked when they met. Yeah. I had a hard time figuring out how to tackle this in my book because it felt so important that I address for the self-objector fire body image avatar, someone who's learned to see themselves and their worth as uh, basically dependent on their attractiveness. It shows up so differently inside of long-term committed relationships versus like the dating space or, you know, early relationship spaces. Mm -hmm. And I ended up just needing to do it completely separately and being like, here's how it often looks in these two places because unfortunately, a lot of the women that I work with will, they will be married or long-term partner committed and still constantly live in fear, feel panicky and insecure and all of these really awful feelings based on uh, basically not being able to look hot enough to sort of, again, they're not usually thinking this, but like to keep their partner committed to avoid abandonment or, you know, being cheated on or whatever the thing is. And that is devastating. It is so painful, so scary, so overwhelming. And a lot of times in these cases, we have to really go in and be like, like the thing I said before about uh, learning to blame the system or the people versus yourself. I have to be like, can you tell me how you would feel about this person who you love and believe is a very good person? If he revealed to you that he just thinks you're fat now or look too old so he's he's out he's done with this like how would you feel about that version of this person and they're always like oh I that would be horrible like I would judge him so harshly for being such a superficial jerk and I'm like great then let's just assume that if he were to reveal himself in this way you would have dodged a bullet 
like, thank goodness that you didn't have to spend the rest of your life with someone who secretly was kind of a horrible person. Because that is the only negative outcome. Your heart would still break. It would still suck so bad. But it would be on him, not on you. And I think that starts to shift from like panic and obligation, like I have to maintain this aesthetic or else I'm going to be abandoned to like, actually, my partner has committed to me under the circumstances that I believe he's a good person who loves me for who I am. And that would be a a complete break in our agreement if he revealed otherwise. Mm. And that wouldn't be acceptable. I wouldn't want to be with that person. Yeah. It's such a like a reality based like, when we put it in those terms, it just becomes so obvious. Like, of course, yeah. you wouldn't want to be with that person, even though on some level it's like, yeah, I'm worried that that's what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, but that's like the power of the anger too. Getting, getting, painting a hyperbolic enough, sort of ridiculous <laughs> enough, like you know, idea here, so that they can be like, oh, <laughs> screw that guy, you know. Right. And just tapping into that anger immediately takes them out of that disempowered, ang- anxious. I have to like protect myself by you know, following all these rules place and allows them to be like, oh, okay, I see this differently now. What would you say to the kind of flip side of that partnership, the person who either is worried that they're going to lose attraction to their partner as they age or or says, right, that mm-hmm. their, their partner's body has changed and they have lost attraction? Yeah. So this is another really common one. I would say similarly to what I said before, we approach it with a lot of curiosity and acceptance. Like, that's possible. And if it is, we will explore it in a way that maybe is more creative or, you know, yeah, interesting, playful, whatever, than you've been taught. Like, we'll handle that if that's just legit what's going on. But I've yet to meet someone who actually, when they started exploring it, discovered I just am not attracted to them anymore because of their body. Um, There is always, always, always other stuff going on. And sometimes it's the meaning, for example, like I'm not attracted to my partner anymore because they gained weight might really be, I'm not attracted to them anymore because they, they used to be this very vibrant person, you know, who sort of like was active and enthusiastic. And now they spend all their time on the couch and they're kind of like in this place that makes me feel a little abandoned or disconnected. You know, sometimes it's that. And then other times it's just that we are, we do not want to have sex with people that we don't feel safe with. And so any number of relationship issues can make us not feel attracted, which is to say like, you know, the body's break slam on when the thought of being intimate with someone we don't feel safe with comes up. And I think, again, it's a bummer that we were taught to ascribe any of these experiences to appearance because when you think it's that, you don't really feel a need to dig a whole lot deeper, you know? But then you're stuck and there's nothing to do. You just either wait till they get hotter again or find someone else. I mean, it's a pretty limited plan. But when you understand that there's deeper stuff going on, there's always something you can do. You can explore like what is making me feel unsafe? What is it that I need? What what is making me feel, you know, hurt or resentful or um, abandoned or whatever, disconnected? Mm -hmm. The other thing that I imagine, I don't know if you've come across this, I certainly have seen in some of my clients coming back to like narcissistic family systems, a desire to have a partner who fits a mold that their family has given them Mm -hmm. um, as this is what an attractive or valuable partner looks like. Mm -hmm. And so 
I can also imagine that if a partner starts to, you know, age and, and kind of stop looking like that, their sort of unprocessed trauma from that family system, the yeah. internal narcissist starts to speak up and say, this is not acceptable and this does not make me look good. Yeah. And then that starts to come out on the partner. And that's the piece where I just like, again, my heart breaks is where some of these things are being spoken to the partner, right? Without the person actually looking yeah. at what's underneath that. Mm-hmm. I actually do pretty regularly if a client has like a previous history of being criticized or picked apart for their body by a partner. Um, sometimes we'll go back in and look for the context that maybe they're image emotionally immature partner was unable to voice when he said like I don't know your thighs are gross like what could it have meant it's not exactly helpful always to uh, try to understand someone (laughs) who's just being unkind or disrespectful but there are times we're just going in and understanding that um, they were basically using you in a way that like is unacceptable or that they were holding you to a standard or wanting to control you so that you would make them look good, really understanding that, again, it takes the pressure off of you to have smaller thighs and it makes it like, oh, okay, I can see that that wasn't on me. Um, but yeah, I think that, that that's a really tricky one, especially when it's the person I'm working with is feeling all these things starting to rise up and it's so dark and shamey and they're like, I don't want to be like this, but I kind of want him to check this box and fulfill this status and, you know, like make my family proud of me and all these things that are just so big. And once you really name them so dark because you wouldn't normally go around being like, yeah, I pick people to make me look good. But when it's under there, it's under there. Yeah, again, the darkest of the dark with some of these, with relationships, mm-hmm. with body image. Oh, yeah. I feel called in this moment to remind folks that if you're experiencing that, having that thought doesn't mean anything about you. Right. It's just so important to see that it's there <laughs> so that you don't yeah. keep doing the things that uh, yeah. are causing harm in your relationship or but just yeah recognizing like that is such a, a, yeah. a painful and and not life-giving way of approaching it yeah it is and nobody just invented it out of nowhere right you have that thought that probably happened to you and there's a yeah. good reason that that wound up in there um, so I totally agree. There's no there's no shame in it. It can feel really dark and scary to admit. I've had plenty of those moments in my own relationship stuff where I'm like, oh, man, I'm doing the thing I would judge anyone else ever for doing right now. And it's a strategy I learned somewhere. And now I have to mm-hmm. learn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a whole thing now. Um, but yeah, it also I think it's an invitation. It's an invitation to go deeper and figure out what is going on if you want the kind of relationship that really is, as you say, like life-affirming or nourishing, um, you're going to have to go in there and see what's going on. And maybe the person really isn't a good fit for any number of reasons and you chose them from a place that you don't necessarily still want to be choosing from. But often it's just an, it's a matter of uh, owning, the, owning your side of the street, basically, and, <laughs> and then showing up and letting that be enough. I'm also thinking about 
relationship milestones and how our attachment material gets activated when we cross certain thresholds. So when we become exclusive, when we move in together, when we get engaged, when we have kiddos, more trauma material just naturally gets activated. And so just wanting to encourage so the listener to really notice when these things are, are, are popping up. When am I starting to have these thoughts about my partner that do not feel like they are me? They do not feel aligned with my values. Is it coinciding with something that maybe is touching on some younger stuff that you just can't consciously acknowledge or or process. And so it's being projected onto your partner in some way. I will also say that we tend to judge our partners harshly when uh, we have unmet needs that we are feeling resentful or hurt or abandoned or whatever other uh, needs that we have are going unmet. So if you catch yourself being especially critical about them, their appearance, how they got, you know, into this state, whatever it might be, or, or feeling like that stuff is very loud, that would be a great time to slow down and notice, like, what needs might have gone unmet for a while here at that? I mean, anger is like a super useful tool for coping with uh, vulnerability in a lot of ways. So it makes sense that it would come up. And then other times it goes the complete opposite direction and it's like the unmet needs and the vulnerability lead you to blame yourself. And now maybe you're having a complete body image meltdown, a shame spiral. You're blaming yourself for being a failure, unworthy. And it's kind of the same thing. Like you have unmet needs and it's just painful to have unmet needs with someone that you care about so much. So these things often rise up or cover up for those Mm -hmm. things as well. Going back to something you said a moment ago, Jesse, it, it made so much sense to me when you were saying if it's just about attraction, like physical attraction, their body changing, you have nowhere to go, right? And in in like the system of the couple, of the, of the relationship, if you stop there, number one, you have nowhere to go. And and then you're also usually like causing harm to your partner, right? It's It, it can be very painful to have somebody say, I'm no longer attracted to you because you've gained weight or because you have wrinkles or because, you know, whatever X, Y, Z change in your body. So it's, it's like both you're causing harm and there's no, there's no like possible path forward. And when we drop down that lower, like kind of what's underneath that, what's going on in the relationship, it's occurring to me like attraction is, is kind of never a one-sided thing. I'm curious if you agree with this. I'm, I'm thinking this out loud as I'm saying it, but in the sense, like we're we're in a system, right? There's a there's a relationship happening, and, and what you're naming about, yeah, there's something happening where I don't feel safe, maybe in the relationship, yeah. or there's not emotional intimacy present anymore because we've stopped connecting with each other regularly. Uh, there's a, something in the system is happening that's that needs to be addressed yeah. between the two of you. That you know becomes like okay, there's something we can get curious about together to reconnect erotically or sensually. That isn't like you've changed, you're bad, or or it's on me because, you know, I'm embodying the patriarchy or these unrealistic, you yeah. know, ideals of beauty and it's all my fault for, you know, it's like, oh, no, there's something in the system that's happening here that we can get creative about together to connect and, and engage sensually. So I think what you're getting at is the fact that desire 
in long-term relationship is something that can and should and maybe even must be cultivated together. It is not something that just comes and goes and you get it when you get it. Or I should say, maybe it is that too, but it's not the same thing as like chemistry in the beginning or like, you know, that sort of spontaneous like spark with someone, which is very chemically induced and also just based on other stuff. Uh, a lot of times projections of how you imagine the person to be. Right. But, you know, there's other stuff going on in the beginning. But when you're in a long-term relationship, I think a lot of times the spark dies, or at least that's how people think of it. They think they're less attracted to each other because they just never learned that desire was a thing you could cultivate mm-hmm. or that there was literally any agency inside of the each individual and the partnership itself to to impact it. And there's so much we can do to impact it, including communicate about all the stuff we've just sort of named because that's stuff that'll get in the way. But even just like exploring pleasure and making it a sex life that's based on something other than just the spark of spontaneous desire or chemistry, that's a skill. And the couples who have it long-term have probably cultivated it, whether they are aware of it or not, because most of the time that's just, it's not just going to stick around magically. Well, if I find, if I find the perfect yes. person, yes, Jesse, yes, yes. it will. <laughs> you know, actually, if you look perfect right, right, right. and then find the perfect person, <laughs> then it will be there. And honestly, that's a lot of body image issues in partnership it's often like the fantasy that they're they're wanting so badly is that if i looked better if i looked right we would still have uh the kind of sparky desire and erotic life that we used to have or that i wish we had and and again that just comes from a feeling of complete disempowerment feeling like they have no way of impacting that so as they build that skill and many skills inside that skill um a lot of times the pressure to look quote unquote, perfect, just sort of fades away. Yeah, I feel like what I'm hearing is the through line in all we're talking about around body image is a lot of people, their experience of their body image uh, of other people's bodies comes from this sort of external locus of control. I'm not in control of what other people think of me, what I think of other people's bodies. And it's very objectifying. It's sort of um, what I think is what I think versus, Josh, what you described, like collaborative, right? We, we go into the relationship knowing that we can co-create desire. And there's an, that internal locus of control. I actually have a lot of control over how I feel about your body and how I feel about my body. Maybe not moment by moment I can control what my thoughts are, but ultimately we have the capacity to be curious together and build that skill set, which is, again, I think such a like invigorating, hopeful frame. Definitely. Yeah, I was, uh, I was telling someone recently that they're asking about like, you know, long-term key to desire because they've often experienced a lot of sex and chemistry in the beginning and then it like falls away and they just are not into it anymore, which is a very common pattern for a lot of reasons. But yeah, so she was just asking me like, you know, what do I think the the key is or whatever? How do you keep it interesting? I don't remember how she asked it, but I was like, I don't know how else to put this other than to say like, because she was asking about my partner and I, I was like, our sex life is like our, it's our favorite shared hobby. It's a hobby. And like any hobby, we're constantly like 
talking about it, learning new things, you know, like sharing stuff that comes up and uh, practicing, you know, and trying like you would with any hobby. And he and I don't share a lot of hobbies. So it's kind of our main one. And it's my favorite one. But like that approach was never I've never grew up with anyone talking about it that way. We just don't think of it that way. We think of it as something that sort of just like happens magically if you're hot enough and um, and that's it. And that's so limiting, disempowering, and just a massive bummer because <laughs> it's awesome to make it a hobby. Like intimacy as a hobby is 10 mm-hmm. out of 10, recommend. I love that way of putting it, that lo- way of looking at it. It's so good. And you're so right. Like nobody teaches that as a way of like, Desire, attraction, intimacy could be a thing that you actually cultivate. Could be like your favorite hobby with your sweetie. Like yeah. what a what a like fun way of, of approaching it. Yeah. And it, it just it, I think once you feel a little bit more empowered in that space, it's almost impossible for body image to take up the same to like hold to be on the same pedestal, basically. Because it's a stand-in, it's that shortcut button both for yourself and for your partner. It's like, if I want to feel aroused instead of asking my partner to learn how to arouse me better, I'll just either judge them for not being hot enough or for gaining weight or whatever, or I'll judge myself for not making him do the things properly and read my mind. Like, it's a terrible shortcut, but it is often how that functions. It reminds me a little bit of Stan Hatkin talks about partners who complain that they're bored in a relationship often are boring in the sense that they have disengaged huh. on some level because another person is a Ooh, constantly evolving organism. It's not possible to be bored if you're paying attention to another person's evolution and to the relationship's mm. evolution. So just, yeah, like reframing, like, okay, if there's no spark, where am I not engaging? What have I numbed out from here? What am I maybe not saying? Yeah, I definitely see that. I also, I'm going to give you just a little pushback here and maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but this thought is coming like, I think that I could be bored by people. They just wouldn't be the people I ended up choosing to mm-hmm. partner with. <laughs> like, I think there is probably some... Some people could bore yeah. you, but assuming that they didn't in the beginning and they start to, something has shifted and that something is not who they fundamentally are as a For person, sure. right? Yeah, I, okay. I agree with that. I'll give you that. I like that. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's, yeah, there's so much disconnection that we, I guess, Part of this is patriarchal stuff, like I should never be too needy or men won't like me kind of stuff that a lot of my clients deal with. And of course, men in their own way aren't supposed to be needy either. So basically nobody gets to be all the way there. But yeah, I think there's a lot of disconnection that comes subtly over time and makes people just feel like, well, since they're not pushing us into a closer, more intimate, more connected space, clearly this is what they want. And feeling like it would be unwelcome for you to go in and be like, I want more conversations. I want more connected sex. I want us to like know each other again. Those not only feel unwelcome, they feel like they would um, be a massive burden on the other person, even if they're both separately, which I think is often the case, both separately desperate for it. Mm -hmm. 
they both feel like, well, this is obviously what they want. And I think that kind of disconnect is really, it's harder to name than something that goes wrong. You know, if you have like a major life transformation, you're like, oh, ever since the baby, we haven't been having sex. It's understandable. Like the concept makes sense. It's a lot harder to be like, we slowly stopped knowing each other and I feel lonely at home. And I don't want to have sex from that place, but also I feel scared of doing anything about it because it feels so vulnerable to go in and be like, I don't know what, I don't know who you are anymore. Yeah. Or I don't feel seen by you. Yeah, that can feel so risky. And I'm I'm thinking about people who grow up in homes where there is less abuse and more neglect. And it can be easy to slip into that kind of slightly dissociated, not being totally honest space because yeah. that's what feels normal. And so it can actually yeah. be, you know, trauma work to speak up in in a dynamic like that. Totally. And I think there's also a tricky aspect of that is that like in a healthy supportive relationship, there needs to be a spaciousness and a patience, right? Cause you're not going to be connected all the time, every day feeling seen and all the things. So I do feel like there is, um, it, it often comes from a really lovely impulse to like be compassionate toward whatever their partner's going through or not to burden them when things are especially stressful, but then it often becomes these long tales of disconnect, these, sort of slow fadeaways on both sides. Mm. Well, I feel like I could talk with you about this for hours, Jesse. And uh, I know I'm down. I know we probably have other things to do today. Uh, is there anything else that either of you want to touch on before we, we move towards closing for, for today at least? No, just to say thank you to, to you, Jesse. I, your mind's brilliant and I just love like slicing and dicing ideas with you. Thank you. Um, I feel the same, and I could literally do this for the rest of the afternoon (laughs) pretty happily. So, uh, yeah, no, I I can't think of anything, but I do feel like um, I don't know exactly what your listenership, like where they're at in their journeys, but if they are in a place of feeling like it's just that they're undeserving or nobody's going to choose them because of how they look or they really just aren't attracted to their partner anymore because of how they look or they really are going to be abandoned because of how they look like just know that it makes sense that those thoughts got in there because it does and that doesn't make them true and I promise you there's a world of interesting things if you get curious about it instead of feeling like you already know the answer and it's this such a sweet, hopeful note to leave mm-hmm. folks on. I love it. Jesse, if people want to find you, how do they do that? They can find me. My website is jessineeland.com. So I have all my information there about coaching courses, blog, etc. And then I'm active on Instagram and TikTok at Jesse Neeland and also YouTube. And as you mentioned in the intro of my podcast, this is not about your body. Awesome. We'll include links to all of that in the uh, show notes. Beautiful. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Jesse, for joining us. That is all for today, folks. Um, As I just mentioned, you'll find links to all the resources we mentioned in today's episode in the show notes, as well as at relationshipcenter.com slash podcast. Yes. And dear listener, if something in this episode touched you, will you please leave us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts? That helps us reach more sweet humans like you. And until next time. We we love love you too. too. Bye. Bye.
adorable. <laughs> <laughs>